thank all of you for being here today and uh, for being ready to hear from the Lord. As we get started, I would like to start with a word of prayer and then we'll look at the book of Psalms together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because you're so great and you're greatly to be praised. We thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you have done. And as we come to you today, Lord, at this time, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your word, that you would open our eyes and help us to see you, help us to see your glory as we study your word together, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, Lord, and that you would satisfy us in this moment, satisfy us in our deepest longings from your holy word. Teach us what we don't know. Give us grace to obey all that you show us. In the name of Christ, we pray and ask these things. Amen. All right, so we've been, we're doing Summer in the Psalms, and last week we kind of kicked it off. And we're going to look at Psalm chapter 8 today. And before we get started in Psalm chapter 8, I just kind of want to give an overview of the book of Psalms and give some kind of structure to the book of Psalms. So if I'm going to ask for that first slide to come up, there are five books in the book of Psalms. It's actually one book divided into five parts, okay, or five sections. And so you can see those sections. Can I get that monitor on back there too? Thanks. There are five sections. You can see those sections, book one, two, three, four, and five, broken down. Uh, Chapters one, or Psalms one through 41, is book 1, 42 through 72, book 2, 73 through 89, book 3, 90 through 120, book 4, and book 5 is 121 through 150. And in these psalms, there's kind of a progression. Psalms are great because they're a poetic book. I'm sure you heard about that, but they're also a song book. And so it's in poetic form. What it is helping us to do is to recognize the struggles we all face and how as God's people we ought to respond when we face those struggles. It's okay for us to acknowledge, as the psalmists do frequently, acknowledge that we need help, acknowledge that we're in trouble, acknowledge that if somebody doesn't help, we're going to fall, we're going to fail, we're going to be destroyed. We see all of these emotions coming to the surface as the psalmist writes, and he always knows where to go. Because as he voices his emotion, God... I'm about to fail. God, I'm about to die. God, if you don't help me, I'm going to be overwhelmed. And then after he voices this emotion, after he voices his struggle and his needs, then he calls out to the only one that he knows is capable of helping him, and that is his God. But we see the progression as we read through the books that the struggles seem to get more intense. The struggles seem to happen more frequently. And so that's what we see happening from book 1, 2, 3, 4 to 5. And then at the end of book 5, verses 1, chapters 145 through 150, is a great concluding doxology. That is, it's a collection of words of praise to God. And every book, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, has somewhere, typically at the end of the book, a doxology, a great moment of reflection and praise to God. And so that's kind of the overarching theme or the outline of the entire book of Psalms, 1 through 150. And um, today we want to talk about Psalm chapter 8. Now, like I said, Psalms are songs. And they're 
songs are important. One of the things that we have to be careful about is that songs influence our theology. And that's why I appreciate Pastor Blake so much because he's so careful about the theology of the songs that he leads us through. Songs are powerful forms of worship because they help us to do what the psalmist said in chapter 1. How many of you were here last week for Psalm chapter 1? All right, a significant amount. So you remember that the psalmist says that the person is blessed who meditates on God's law day and night. Do you remember that portion? On his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. He'll bring forth fruit in his season. Everything that he does will prosper. Why? Because he meditates on God's law. Meditate, that word means to moan or mumble. It's somebody, how many of you, when you study, use flashcards and repeat stuff to yourself over and over and over again? And if anybody saw you that didn't know you, they might think you were crazy, right? Uh, Pi equals 3.1415926. And you're just mumbling this stuff to yourself so that you can remember it, right? That's meditation. And one of the ways that we meditate effectively is through song. Because it's poetic, it has good rhythm, and it rhymes, and it helps us to remember better. One of the things that my wife and I did with our children as they were growing up is we would would watch videos of Scripture put to music. And it helped them to memorize portions of Scripture. So, for example, God loves a cheerful giver. Ha, 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 ha. Right? That's scripture. And so you remember it because you put it to song. And so our girls grew up hearing these kinds of things. It helped them to remember. It helps us to remember. But there are still psalms put to song. There's still theology put to song today, isn't there? And so as we jump into Psalm chapter 8, let's not forget the power of a song to evoke emotion and to help us to meditate on God's truth. So right now, let me just ask you, because Psalm chapter 8 starts with verse 1 where he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's starting with the word of praise. Praising God, he ends the same way, uses the exact same words in verse 9. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He starts out by praising God for who he is. He recognizes the majesty that is in his name, the glory, the honor that is in his name. So now, dig deep into the recesses of your mind. I know it's summer break, but maybe you can engage those juices again. And recall some of the names that you know have been used about God in Scripture. Tell me some of those names. Come on. What is it? Yeshua? Yahweh? Adonai? Elohim? Jehovah Jireh? What was I heard one of Jehovah? What's that? Abba? Jehovah Rapha, which means our healer. Jehovah Jireh is our provider. Nisi, our banner. El Shalom. Mm-hmm. God, our peace. Yeah. Okay, now think about some songs that you know that help you to remember who God is. Because that word name isn't just talking about his proper name. Although it's used when it says, O oh Lord, our Lord, he uses his proper name. And you can tell that it's his proper name because it's written in all capitals in your Bible, right? That's how you know it's his proper name. And that proper name is Yahweh, which means I am. 
I am that I am. I always have been. I always am and I always will be. That's his name. But a name is more than just a title. It reminds us in Scripture of the character of the person. And that's what he's talking about. Lord, you are majestic because of who you are. Because of your character, you're majestic. And so... When he talks about that name, then we can think about some songs that remind us of who he is, right? We can go back and think about some great hymns that remind us of who God is. Which, and there's one that in particular jumped into my mind as I was meditating on this psalm. Because he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he starts to look at the heavens and he says, when I consider the stars. And I started thinking about the hymn, How Great Thou Art. Oh, Lord, my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Right? I see the stars, I hear the roaring thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. You see, as he meditates on the greatness of who God is and what God has done, it it propels him into praise and worship. I was thinking about Some other songs, of course, I'm a little bit older than most of you, so most of mine are retro songs, right? Uh, Do any of you even know who Amy Grant is? Okay, wow, Keith Green? Yes. And so you think about these songs that they sing that remind us of the name of God. Uh, Amy Grant sang El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Eloyona, Adonai. Um, Keith Green... um, He had all kinds of great songs that would push me into a place of worship or draw me into a place of worship. Uh, I also think about um, Sandy Patty. She sang that song, O Lord, Our Lord, How Majestic Is Your Name in All the Earth, right? That that Psalm chapter 8 put the song. Uh, But I was also thinking about one that probably resonates more with this generation, My Lighthouse. He's my lighthouse. He's shining in the darkness, and I will follow him. He's my lighthouse. Names of God that remind us of who he is, his character. And so that's where the psalmist starts with Psalm chapter 8, is meditating on who God is. Now, what I want to do, if we'll go to the next slide, what I want to try to do in the time we have left is to teach you a way to study Scripture so that you can teach others. God has called us to be his sons and daughters, and he has entrusted us with the treasure of his gospel message. And so all of us ought to be able to teach from God's word. We all ought to be able to handle God's word rightly. And here's a way that we can do it. When we study privately or when we study to prepare to teach others, if we'll ask ourselves these questions, what, so what, and now what? And as we answer those questions in Scripture, we will have a better or more complete understanding of what the text is saying, whether it's an entire chapter or a portion of Scripture, so that we can then communicate those truths to somebody else. So, let's look at uh, slide three. We'll look at the next slide, and this is a little breakdown of each one. Okay? When we ask the question, what, what we are looking for is, what is the text saying? You see, I put in parentheses there, MIT. I'm not talking about the school. Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that's not it. MIT is the main idea of the text. 
Okay, that's what MIT stands for, the main idea of the text. That's what we try to answer in the what question. What's the big picture? What's the main idea? So what we ask, and we try to answer this question, so what does this teach me about God? And what does this teach me about myself or about humanity? Okay, what is the text saying? So what is it teaching me about God and about myself? And then the now what is trying to answer, now what does the Holy Spirit want me to do with what I have learned, with what he has revealed? So we answer those questions. What's the text saying? What's it teaching me about God and about myself? And what does God want me to do with this new information? He doesn't give us the information just to meditate on it and say, okay, God, that's really cool, right? He wants us to do something with it. And so he, he reveals it to us for a purpose. And those are the questions that we'll try to answer. So I'm going to leave those up right now, and we're going to work through these questions together as we look at Psalm chapter 8, all right? So open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Psalm chapter 8, and let's just read through all nine verses first. And let's think about answering that question, what's the big idea, the main idea of the text? It says, there's a title, How Majestic Is Your Name? And it says, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. So we know who the author is. And then we read his words, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. O Lord, our Lord. Okay? Uh, we'll, We'll break each verse down a little bit when we get into the so what. Right now we're just reading, trying to understand the big picture. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all thing under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So after we read those nine verses, what would you say is the big picture? What's the main idea of the text? Yeah. The greatness of God, right? The majesty of God. Um, I, I tried to add a little superlative to it. The exceedingly great majesty of God. Because it's not just, if we say how majestic, yes, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. No, he is. He's taking it to the extreme. Exceedingly great majesty is in our Lord. And so that's what I wrote down for the what the text is saying. It talks about the exceedingly great majesty of God. So then we step into the so what, and we're trying to answer, so what does this text teach me about God and about myself? And that's really where we start to dig deeper, okay? So as we look at this, we start back in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. He uses, first of all, the all caps word for Lord, which is Yahweh, the personal name, I am. When God, when Moses was talking with God on the mountain and Moses said, Who shall I say has sent me? God gives him this name. He says, Tell them that I am has sent you. And that's the name that God uses for himself. But then there's Lord lowercase, which is Elohim, which means a ruler over you. Okay? That's the smaller L. And so he recognized him 
as Lord, a ruler over him, and as the one true God in the same sentence. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how glorious, how honorable, how worthy is your name in all the earth. And so what I want to do is I want to break this down, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and verses 5 through 8 will be the three sections we'll look at. At the end of each one of those sections, we will answer the question, now what? Okay? So digging deeper with 1 and 2, your majestic name is over all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the adventure. So what is God teaching us about himself and about ourselves as we dig into this word. First of all, he is supreme. He's God. He's Lord over all. And his glory is so magnificent that he ha- he can't contain you. We can't contain it in a small place like the earth, right? He sets his glory over all of creation. That's how majestic his glory is. That's how honorable and, and worthy of praise he is. He puts his, his glory is so huge it covers the expanse of the universe. You've set your glory above the heavens. He's such an awesome God that he says in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God is so awesome that God can use babies who can't even walk to put thousands of seasoned war veterans to flight. That's how awesome God is. He's recognizing God's awesomeness, his glory, his majesty in these first two verses. There is no God like Yahweh. There is none more glorious, none more awesome in power, none more worthy of our service and devotion. O God, our God, how majestic is your name. You've set your glory above the heavens. That's how huge it is. And you're so awesome that you can use babies and infants to put the enemy to flight. Now, David would have seen the reality of this truth, wouldn't he? David would have grown up hearing about the Exodus story. He would have heard about the plagues. He would have heard about how millions of of Hebrews left Egypt, who was the dominant military power of their time. None of the people in, he- in, in Israel, none of the Hebrew children were seasoned battle veterans. They didn't defeat the greatest army in the world because they took up their hoes and their sickles and beat them in a military battle. They defeated the greatest army in the world by the strength of God. And so these babies in battle put the most powerful army to flight. Why? Because God was at work. The awesome God that he is worshiping in these two verses says, You think you're strong, Pharaoh. You think you're mighty, Egypt. But all I need is just a flick of my finger to take care of you. That's how awesome our God is. But David would have seen this awesome display of power also when he faced Goliath, right? Remember, David was just a shepherd what? Boy, that's right. Just a boy. When he faced Goliath. This mountain of a man who made the rest of the soldiers in Israel's army cower in fear. And yet David, because he trusts in the strength of his God, defeats the giant. He saw it. 
He knew about it from Israel's history. He saw it as he faced Goliath. He saw it as, as he says in his own testimony when he faced the bear and the lion to rescue the sheep. What does the New Testament have to say to us about how great this God is? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at a few places. Keep a bookmark there in, in Psalm 8 because you know we're coming back. And let's go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 19. And so this is Jesus speaking in Matthew's gospel. And in chapter 10, verse 19, he says to his disciples, he warns them that they're going to face difficulties ahead, that there's going to be persecution, that they'll be arrested and thrown in jail and brought before governors and kings. And he says in verse 19, when they deliver you, not if, but when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Do you see what he says to his children? He says, I understand you're just spiritual infants. But when they arrest you and they bring you on trial before kings and governors, you don't have to worry because I will be your voice. I will speak through you. He's still putting the enemies to flight through infants and babes like us. In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, this is what we see. is Peter and John are standing on trial, and they're brought before kings and governors. The people who were trying them were marveled because when they saw Peter and John, they recognized them as ignorant, uneducated people. And yet, they were powerful in answering the accusations brought against them. This is what our God does for us. This is who he is and how he's at work in our lives How many of us have ever blown a witnessing opportunity because we were afraid we didn't have the words to say? We wouldn't know the answers to the questions that they might ask. And yet God's promise to us is, I can work through you in that condition because I'll be your mouthpiece. I'm your strength. I'm your wisdom. So he's still doing those kinds of awesome things. And it's good for us to remember that he doesn't choose us because of some ability that he sees in us. Did you hear that? In in elementary school, well, (laughs) even today I'm still the runt, okay? But in elementary school it was even worse, I got to tell you. And so I was, I was the smallest kid on the playground. And so um, I so desperately wanted to be picked in any game, right? I wanted to be on. So I worked really hard to excel at sports so that I could be somebody who gets picked first. I didn't want to be the last guy picked. Oh, you can have moats. Nobody wants him, right? Don't we all hate being in that position? Here's the really cool thing about God. He doesn't pick us because of abilities he sees in us. 
He picks us because of what he can do through us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. God is at work in his people and at work through his people. And he's still doing that today. He can do it with us. So when we get to the now what of this first section, verses 1 and 2, don't wait until you attain some level of greatness before you start to obey God. If I just memorize a few more scriptures, then I'll be a better witness for you, God, and then I'll really be, I'll really be serious about talking to people about Jesus. Or, I, God, I'll, I'll start leading my family in worship as soon as I master this book myself. Don't wait. That's not what he calls us to do. He says, obey now and trust that I, in your weakness, can prove myself strong. Obey now. Let me be strong for you. Remember or recall God's greatness and obey now. All right, so in verses 1 and 2, he meditates on God's greatness, and part of that greatness is, is meditating on what he can do through even seemingly helpless people, infants and babies, okay? And then in verses 3 and 4, we read these words in Psalm chapter 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Wow. So as we look at this, remember David was a shepherd, right? He spent a lot of nights out in the open fields. You can see a whole lot more stars if you're out in the open fields and away from the city lights. As in Desert Storm, we were on a tiny little island called Bahrain, And I never saw so many shooting stars in all my life as the few months that I spent on that island of Bahrain. And the reason was because there weren't many lights. And so you could see the heavens more fully. And here's David, a shepherd, sitting out under God's creation, looking at the stars. And he says, Lord, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you take thought of him? Let me help you to understand what this is. Verses 1 and 2 was focusing on God's greatness. God is great. Verses 3 and 4 are focusing on how ungreat we are. We're not great, right? God's great, we're not. Verses 3 and 4 are focusing on that. Lord, when I see what you have created, who am I? That you would take thought of me, that you would notice me. In the Milky Way. There are 100 billion stars. 100 billion stars. That's farther than I can count. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years from one side to the other. 100,000 light years means 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second. Pretty big, huh? And yet God's glory is above that? That's how awesome our God is? And when we think about the Milky Way and all the stars that are in the Milky Way and how huge the Milky Way is, oh, for all of you who need to know miles per hour, it's 671 million miles an hour. That's smoking. (laughs) Man, who wouldn't like to have a car that could do that, right? Okay. 
So 100 billion stars, you'd just get in trouble if you had that car anyway, right? But who's going to catch you? Uh, 100, 100 billion stars, 100,000 light years across. Pretty awesome. Now, let's look at Isaiah chapter 40. You can understand when you meditate on how huge our galaxy is, why David would ask this question. When you consider how big the galaxy is, you consider how big the Milky Way is and how many stars there are, a hundred billion of them. How is it possible that he even takes note of us? How, How does he even see us, right? Isaiah says this, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. This is the prophet speaking for God, and he says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, that is God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. How brief our lives are. To whom then will you compare me, that is God, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them what? By name. Whoa, a hundred billion stars and he has each one, has given each one a name and he knows their names? Pretty amazing. Then consider that there are somewhere around 325 million people in the U.S. and 7.4 billion in the world. A hundred billion stars, 7.4 billion people in the world, and yet, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 says, He knows your name. He knows your name. Not only does He know the, the names of all of those 100 billion stars, but He knows your name. And He calls you by name. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine, He says. He gives, when we think about how great God is and how ungreat we are, it's amazing that He gives any thought to us, but He does. He knows our name. And look at Psalm chapter 56. Verse 8. Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. The psalmist, meditating on God, says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God has kept count of our tossings. You know those nights when we're worried about something and we can't sleep and so we're tossing all night long? And he's kept count of our tears and caught them in his bottle. 
When we think about how great the galaxy is and how great our God is and how many stars that he keeps in place every day, all the time, 24-7, 365, forever and ever. When we think that there are 7.4 billion people on this planet and he calls each one of us by name, he knit us together in our mother's womb, we can feel pretty insignificant. But the truth of Scripture, the blessing and the promise of Scripture is you're very important to God. He knows your name. He knows when you're having restless nights. He knows your anxious thoughts. He catches your tears in his bottle and writes them in his book. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I have, he says, look at the birds of the air. It reminds me of another song that reminds me of God's character. And it's an old one. It says, his eye is on the sparrow and he watches over me. And after he says that in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, look at the sparrows and not one of them falls without your father knowing. And he has every hair on your head numbered. Not only does he know my name, but he knows how few hairs I have. Pretty awesome that a God who is so huge, so great, so majestic, so magnificent knows my name, knows every anxious thought, every fear in me, knows every time I rejoice and praise him, he knows all about me. Doesn't it humble you? Doesn't it, doesn't it bless you to know that your God cares that much for you? One of the things the enemy likes to do, the devil, well, not just one thing. Uh, I'll give you some D's. He likes to discourage, he likes to degrade, and he likes to devalue people. Right? He likes to remind us of our failures. Can I get an amen? Whew. The devil is quick to remind us, man, you blew it. You just had it. God handed you a witnessing opportunity on a silver platter and you walked away. How could he love you after you failed him like that? Don't you think that's what Peter was thinking? After he denied him three times in one night? And yet, what did God do with Peter? He restored him and made him a builder of his church. Because God's great, not because Peter's great. How cool is it that God thinks so highly of his creation, values us, that he would know us by name, that he would catch our tears in his bottle, and that he would have our hairs numbered. There are many ways in which the enemy tries to devalue, discourage, and degrade us. Reminding us of our failures is one way. The whole teaching of evolution is another. Right? That you're not a special creation of God. You're just some cosmic accident. How devaluing is that? Is that what Scripture teaches? No, you're the crowning jewel of His creation. That's what Scripture teaches. You're so important to Him that He knows your name. And he calls you by name. So, we've, we've done the what and the so what. We dug deep into these verses, seeing how insignificant we really are, how ungreat we are. And yet, God values us. He treasures us. Another song, Stephen Curtis Chapman, You Are a Treasure. Right? You see how 
songs influence us, how they draw out our emotions, how they remind us of God's create of God's character. Don't think of yourselves more highly than don't not yourselves, ourselves. Let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But let's not let's also not think of ourselves uh, more lowly than we ought. We are rather insignificant when we consider the greatness of God's creation. Yet he values us highly. He treasures us. And um, he values us so much that we're reminded of the truth of Scripture that he sent his only son to die to pay the price for our sins so that we might be saved by his grace through faith in what he's done so that we might no longer be enemies of God but become his sons and daughters. That's how much he values us. He's a great God. We're not great, but he greatly values us. Amen? What a promise. All right, so then verses 5 through 8, as we wrap up the psalm, we get into verses 5 through 8. Oh, just in case you're wondering. Have you been... How many of you, no, I won't do it that way. If you are not spending time in God's Word daily, let me encourage you to do that. And since in this group we're spending the summer in the Psalms, why don't you try reading a Psalm every day, okay? And if today is the day you start, meditate on verse 8 and then tomorrow do verse 9 and just keep reading through the Psalms because they will prepare you to hear what God's going to say next week as the speaker comes up here and teaches from the Psalms, okay? So just meditate on those, read through those through the week. What I did as I was getting ready for this to help myself meditate on who God is, is I just read through Psalms 1 through 7 and picked out some of the ways God reveals himself to us in those first seven Psalms. And this is my list. And and so in Psalm 1, he is judge. In Psalm 2, he sits on the throne of heaven. He is almighty. He's king and king of kings. In Psalm 3, he's our savior, our sustainer, and our defense. In Psalm 4, he's the God who hears, the God who answers, the God who gives relief from distress. He is faithful and trustworthy, the God of our peace. In Psalm chapter 5, he does not delight in wickedness of any kind. He's steadfast in love. He's our protector and our shield. In Psalm 6, he's gracious and a healer and a deliverer. In Psalm 7, he's our refuge. He's the righteous God who tests our hearts and minds. He's our shield and the most high God. And all of that brings us to Psalm 8 where he rejoices in how great God is. And so we see that greatness and we're reminded that we're not great. And then in verses 5 through 8, he reminds us, even though God's great and we're not great, God has placed great value on us, but he's also given us great responsibility, great roles to fulfill for his glory. And so... Look at Psalm chapter 8 again, and let's read those verses to remind ourselves. Yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And so, while we're not as great as God, we're, we're number three in the ranking, right? We're third place. There's God, there's the heavenly beings, and then there's man, humanity. We're third. That's not too bad. So he does put some value on us. We're just not as great as him, and we should never think that we are. But we are significant. And then he gives us a role to play. He says, you've crowned him with glory and honor. Okay, humanity is valuable and important to God. And once again, this whole, this whole idea of, of uh, evolution devalues that significance. 
And so it's no big deal then to abort a child who's made in the image of God because we've taken that value away from that child. They're just a glob of goop. And so we can discard it. Right? That's the enemy that says that. But God says mankind is valuable to him. The crowning achievement of his creation on this earth. And he has crowned us with glory and honor. He says you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. The fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. He's given to humanity dominion. He put man in the garden and he said rule over everything that I have created. Take care of the garden. Take care of the beasts in the field, the birds in the air, and the fish in the sea. God has made us stewards of his creation. He wants us to take care of what he has created for us to enjoy. He wants us to exercise dominion, rulership over it. But not to undervalue it either. He created it for us to enjoy. He's given us a great position. He's given us great responsibility to manage over all that he has created and put us in this place to manage it for him. He's given us a great commission. Oh, why'd you have to go there? Why'd you have to go down that road, Mr. Oates? Man, I was doing all right until you got there. Yeah. God entrusts us with the treasure of his word so that we can take it to others. Why? Because all of creation is pointing to the glory of God. Remember, that's how the psalm started, right? The psalmist is looking at what God has created, and he worships the creator. That revelation has been given to God's people so that we might share that revelation with others who do not yet see him in such a way. So that we can invite them to worship him with us. We can invite them into his glory and into his majesty and into his throne room. So that they might see in creation the glory and magnificence and majesty of our God. He entrusts that to us. And he says, look, I've given you this treasure and I've given you all of my authority. And who's greater than God? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Nobody, right? No one's greater than God. No one's greater than God, so no authority is greater than him. So if he sends us out with his authority, what can man do to us? Who can oppose us if we're on God's side? Oh, yes, people will come against us, but God always wins. And he sends us out with this treasure and with this commission to go into all the world to tell people about the God who has created this world and how much he loves them as a part of this world. He gives us a great position. He gives us a great responsibility. He gives us the great commission. And he gives us a great ministry. So, the ministry, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, man. Time flies when you're having fun. Second Corinthians chapter five, we'll start in verse seventeen. Second Corinthians chapter five. The the section actually starts in verse sixteen, but 
the thought I want to pass on to you starts in verse 17. Therefore, he's talking about all that Christ has done for these people in the church at Corinth. And he says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, because he's already reminded them of where they came from. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us... What's he entrusting to us? The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Him. And we're calling others, imploring others, to be reconciled to God. He gives us the great commission and He gives us the great ministry. And the great ministry is to go out and to tell others how they can be in a right relationship with God. We are His ambassadors. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And as His representatives, ambassadors to this world, we are calling others, hey, be in a right relationship with God. Who is God? Well, you don't know who God is? Well, look all around you. Do you see the stars in the sky? Do you know the planets? Do you see the birds in the air and the trees and the flowers? The one who made those things and made you, that's the God I'm talking about. And all that he has created points to his glory. And you could be his son and daughter. You can be a part of his family and a part of his kingdom. That's the ministry he's given to us. Each one of us to call others to be reconciled to God. And so my alarm just went off, which reminds me it's time to wrap up. So we ask, now what on the last section? Think more humbly about ourselves and more highly of God. More humbly about ourselves, more highly of God. John the Baptist said, I must what? Decrease and he must increase. And so we think more humbly about ourselves, more highly about God, but also be more faithful in carrying out our great part in God's great plan. Our great part in God's great plan. By myself, I'm insignificant. But I'm highly valued by God. And because of that, I have worth. And he's given me a great part in his plan to reach the world. For his glory. Each one of us has a role in that. So be faithful in carrying out your great part in God's great plan. And point others to God's glory, God's greatness through God's creation. Now, my answers aren't comprehensive. There might be other things that God's Spirit is saying to you through these lessons, through these verses, okay? So as you meditate on the psalm, ask Him, Lord, besides what we looked at today, is there something else you're teaching to me, something else you want me to do? The psalmist ends the psalm the same way he began it. As he was talking, as he remembered and reflected on chapters 1 through 7 about who God is, it pushed him into praise and worship. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. As he thinks about, he starts this psalm with the greatness of God, the insignificance of man, and yet the great value and the great role that has been given to us, he's pushed into praise again, right? Because the greatness is found in who God is and the relationship we have with him. Oh Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. 
in all the earth. In you, and you, and you. His name is majestic in all the earth. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, and right here in this room. In every individual that you have saved by your grace, Lord, that individual has become the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Valuable because of the treasure that is in us, not because of who we are, but because of who we belong to. The one who keeps us and created us. And Lord, we confess to you that there are times that we are beaten down by the attacks of the enemy. We're discouraged, we're depressed, we're defeated. And Lord, in those times, I pray that you would help us to meditate on the truths of your word. On our own, we're insignificant. But you have made us just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. You've given us a great role in this world, in this creation. And you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And you rose him from the dead so that we could live forever with you as your sons and daughters, your priests and kings and your ambassadors. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have failed to worship you. Forgive us for the times where we have failed to communicate to others how they might worship you. How they might be in a right standing with you. Help us to be faithful, Lord. We cannot do it on our own, but like the babes and the infants of verse 2, you can do great things through us because you are great. So, Lord, I just pray that we would be teachable, that we would be usable, that we would be vessels fit for your use. Help us to think rightly about ourselves, humbly about ourselves, and to think highly of you at all times. And as we look around us at what you have made, may our thoughts be directed heavenward to the God who created it all and sustains it all. In the name of Jesus, our great God, our mighty King, our Savior and Lord, we pray and ask all of these things. Amen.